I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. DNA. DNA. We've all got it, and we're constantly told by scientists and newspaper articles, indeed science podcasts, that it's the blueprint for building a living organism. There's a version of this twisty molecule in virtually every cell in the human body, and in many ways it controls our destiny. DNA contains the instructions for how many fingers your hand should grow, what colour eyes you dazzle the world with, and it can even be used to predict your likelihood of cancer. Ever since biologists finished, ten years ago, reading the entire human genome, that's the full sequence of genes that is unique to humans, they have realised how complicated genetic material actually is. Just listen to this. There's a bit of sequence under that window there. If you're into single-letter amino acid codes, uh, it goes TGATAATAG, which is stop codons. And the first one is TTC, then AGG, which is F and R of Fred Sanger. So we spell Fred Sanger's name that. But actually, the thing about genetic material is that although it's really small, we can read it, and even transcribe it using those letters A, T, C and G. It's a bit like how digital code is always a series of noughts and ones. And one chap who worked out how to read the code is Fred Sanger, whose name, as you heard, is now encoded in the genetic speak on a stained glass window at the institute that bears his name, the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, just outside Cambridge. It employs hundreds of scientists, all working on various elements of genetics research. They recently produced the first full sequence of the gorilla genome, that is, all the genes that make gorillas gorillas. The reason why scientists at Sanger and elsewhere sequence genomes is that the results tell them all about how that species became a different species, including when it diverged from its evolutionary cousins, and why it is the way it is today. For example, as you'll hear later on, studying the genes of the malaria parasite carried by mosquitoes reveals just how it is able to penetrate a person's red blood cells to infect them. If an organism were a car, its genome would be the Haynes Owner's Manual, detailing everything about how it works. But genomes are much more complex than cars, and they take the form of the very small and very long molecule DNA. Only with machines can we sequence all the genes in an organism's genome. That is why, on a recent tour of Sanger by the Institute's Media and Public Relations Manager, Don Powell, it was his voice you heard earlier, he took me not to a lab with scientists at workbenches, but a room full of giant computers. It smells and feels very much like a hospital there to is me. A, there's the smell of lab, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely, definitely lab. <laughs> lab smell and <coughs> hospital-type floor. No, this, uh, like this and lots of like white walls and heavy-looking white doors. <laughs> And if you could put a lab coat on, please. Some lights in the stage. Let's go in and Through a big white door. And into a room full of big white machines with jazzy lights on them. <laughs> you can hear the buzz. You can hear the computing power going on. We're in this room, what is it, 30 by 25 metres. Um, it's our sequencing centre. 
Uh, where we're standing now, we have two very different generations of sequencing machine. On this side, on my left, is the Applied Biosystems 3730 machine. It came out about 2002, 2003. Um, does 96 samples at a time in a 384 well plate. And it's these powerful machines that still use some of the techniques developed by Fred Sanger in the 1970s to sequence genes. Across the corridor are the latest sequencing, well not latest, the mainstay of our sequencing today, which are high seek from Illumina. Uh, the Illumina machines grew out of the University of Cambridge, chemistry department, a company called Selexa, built up the road, just down the road here on the Science Park, Chesterford. Um, started trading as Selexa, then Illumina, the San Diego-based chip manufacturer, bought Selexa to give them a foothold in sequencing. And the HiSeq is the first machine they built from the floor up. Um, hugely efficient, um, 600 billion bases in 10 days from this box. But these machines are getting faster and faster all the time. They and are. You spend so much money buying them, are they obsolete as soon as you buy them? How do you deal with, with the speed of development you in this You have area? to spend a lot of careful time looking at the best choices ah. for what we do. Um, so you'll see we have some other machines in, in the room as well. You're right. Um, the, we have these machines, they fit our IT infrastructure well in particular. So one point I should say is we are a charity, we endorse no commercial products. Um, this is the machine that, that fits, fits our enterprise, um, fits our IT in fact, and in, in informatics of Basically you've got two flow cells in there in which you sequence at random clusters of DNA affixed to a, a microscope slide effectively with a cover slip on. And then you use a microscope objective lens to visualize the, the base synthesis that goes on. We can do that back of the room. As I say, 600 gigabases out of this machine in 10 days. There's about 25 of these running at the moment, which gives you about one human genome per hour doing 2030x coverage, because you obviously sequence more than once. Okay? Just go around the corridor here. Laser containment systems, says the sign on a big blue so, canvas. Uh, two other types of technology here, Roche 454 flex machines, uh, which I guess are about six, seven years old now, um, which give us long reads. They don't do very many samples. They're not as cost effective as other technologies. They give us long reads. And if you want to assemble genomes, that can be very, very valuable. Mm. Similarly, this thing here is a Pacific Biosciences packed bio machine. Um, this is huge. It's huge, you're right. Yes, this is the size of what a small car or something. <laughs> I've had cars smaller than this machine. But it's a lot cooler than any car I've ever owned. Um, it's a large part of it is concrete, um, is its weight. Um, what it does is it gives a little cell, and there aren't any in here, but there's a little station here in which to, into which the cells would fit. And so you've got about a one centimeter by one centimeter cell that's got 80,000 pores in it, and you do single molecule sequencing through those pores. The machine will do those 80,000, actually I think it's 160,000, sorry, I beg your pardon, it's just been doubled. 160,000 samples in a couple of hours, it'll give you 2,000, 3,000 bases at a time. So a bit like the flex, you're getting long reads, not high throughput, but if you want to get long read lengths to build a genome de novo, where you, you're looking for overlaps between bits of DNA sequence, then this is one of the ways to do it. The other advantage is you, can, you don't have to have an amplification step. So if you're concerned that amplification, which most other technologies involve, loses you sequence because 
based content or repeat content or whatever, then this machine might solve that problem. So this is one I think of two in the UK. It's got to be the biggest on button I've ever seen as well. It's, <laughs> it's a cracking on button. Giant yeah, yeah. On button. And the big green light is good too. Yes. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> okay, one more. Look. And it is on these machines that Chris Tyler Smith's team at Sanger recently sequenced the genome of a certain San Diego resident called Camilla. Geneticists finally published the full human genome in 2003, the chimpanzee genome in 2005, and the orangutan genome in 2011, but that left a very large, black, hairy gap. Gorillas. Camilla, from San Diego Zoo, is the first gorilla to have her genome mapped, and it was done right here at Sanger. Chris's team produced a high-quality draft sequence of Camilla's genome. It's a pretty good sequence, not quite up to the standards of the human sequence that people have been polishing for years, but good enough for science. So, how genetically close are we to gorillas? 98% sequence identity with, with humans. I mean, that's pretty much con confirming what we expected from previous small-scale studies. Then they could look at the genes to see what they did, and found one of particular interest. And it's a, a keratin gene uh, expressed in the knuckle pads of gorillas, and so we'd like to speculate that uh, that, that might have contributed in a, a relevant way to some of the functional biology of, of gorillas. There are rare variants in the human genome that cause disease, but you can find that gorillas have them too. For example... One that causes dementia uh, in humans or another that causes a heart disease. And yet gorillas seem to have those variants without suffering any ill consequences, presumably because there are corresponding additional changes in their genomes. So at a very high level, from comparing humans with other great apes. We can learn some of the things that really make us distinctive. What specifically? Well, all the other great apes are rare. There are small population sizes. They are geographically restricted. They're divided into multiple species and or subspecies, usually with gene flow between them. And humans stand out from this pattern as of just a few tens of thousands of years ago. We are five orders of magnitude bigger in population size than these other great apes, and we have a worldwide distribution, and we're a single species. So what are the reasons for these differences? Well, it could be modern human behaviour, which appeared first in the fossil record 50 to 100,000 years ago. Some people have speculated that language, in its full modern complexity, appeared about that time. But these are entirely speculations, and... So far, genetics has pro provided no insights at all, but we're hopeful that that will be an exciting area for, for future work. But really, scientists still have no idea whether there's a genetic basis to this. Their research has so far provided no insight, so it just gives them something to work on. Of course, all the data that needs to be crunched from sequencing these genomes is too much for any human, or gorilla for that matter. So Sanger requires a dazzling IT infrastructure too. And this is a really big 
silver building that we're approaching and one of them's got some smoke coming out of the top. <laughs> On the right here is the energy pod for the data center, so the data center has lots of backup. You can see there are five huge exhaust vents for the five generators. There are four rooms in the, in the data center and there's N plus one, five generators and five great lumps of battery packs to keep it going. Wow, this looks like the server room. <laughs> Wires and server room. cables and flashing LEDs. Okay, um, this is our data center. If you're into IT and computers, then you probably know more than I do, so I shall be <laughs> blustering. If you're not into it and it's boring, I apologize. Um, there are four rooms. There's one here, one there to my left, and there are two behind. They're each 250 meters squared, so it's a 1,000 meter squared data center. So the real challenge is actually running out of space. Um, so we currently have, Sang has, I think, something like 18 petabytes, 18,000 terabytes, 18 million gigabytes of this storage. EBI shares this room with us as well. They have a similar amount. That's capacity. You actually need much more space than that because if you've got, as we have, 22,000 disk drives spinning, a disk drive fails every day because the chance of failure is one in 5,000, one in 10,000. So you have to duplicate data across a RAID array and have failover. So if this disk drive fails, the data rebuilt from this drive here. They will typically be in different rooms, if at all possible, to give resilience. Um, the, as I, said, I mentioned earlier, the centre is running much more efficiently than, than we had planned. It's built on an usual, usual principle. If you went to a day centre a few years ago, there'd be grids on the floor, you throw a piece of paper down, it'd stick to the floor because it's sucking warm air downwards for some reason of physics that none of us understand. In this room, we blow cold air down, the machine fans draw them through. You'll see the next aisle is back to back, so it's much less exciting televisually, but much more functional, and it draws warm air up. And to do all that, we have cold water circulating above the very expensive boxes of machines. Cunning move, works well. There's a leak detection system in there. Um, most of our processing is done on cores. They're mainly uh, multi-core on blades. Um, you know, a, a laptop card stretched out as a blade and racked up in a box. Mm -hmm. uh, they're mainly multi-core, 16-core um, kind of things now. We've got about 10,000 cores that sang on EBI's got a similar number. So they're pretty hot on computing power. Now, one of the things that scientists like to use computers for is, of course, stamp collecting. Well, that's how Dr. Alex Bateman, who gave a talk during my visit to Sanger, sees his job anyway. Alex's goal is to understand molecular biology, the cogs and gears of life. DNA is one substance that's essential to life, but it contains only the plans. It doesn't actually do anything. A few years ago, as far as Alex was concerned, the protein molecules produced by cells by reading DNA were where the interest lay. It's proteins that drive cell function. Essentially, Alex was thinking of collecting information on each protein, which can be grouped into families. Then molecular biologist Cyrus Trathea even said that it would be fairly simple. Back in 1992, he published this very short article in Nature called 1,000 families for the molecular biologist. The article came to the conclusion that the large majority of proteins come from no more than 1,000 families. And this was just like a magnet to, to me and many other people. This is, this is not a big number of things to collect, right? So myself and others rushed in and decided that we'd try to catch them all. And so for the last 15 years of my life, I didn't think it was going to take nearly as long as this, 
Um, I've been working on this database called PFAM, which collects together families of proteins which are related. We've classified really the large majority of proteins now, and this allows us to do lots of useful things with all of the new genomes that we're sequencing. We can start to use this stamp collection to understand what the individual functions of all the proteins are and try and put it all together. So Alex really, really likes proteins. And proteins actually do things, much more than other elements of molecular biology, such as DNA, the so-called blueprints for life, or RNA, the molecule that helps to unzip DNA so that other molecules called ribosomes can convert the blueprints into proteins. For some time, Alex thought that ribosomes weren't that interesting either, just another tool on the way to making a protein. But then it was discovered that the cogs and gears inside a ribosome, doing all the heavy lifting, are in fact RNA. The thing that makes proteins is RNA. Uh, and that told me that, oh boy, maybe proteins weren't the centre of the universe after all, um, and that RNA was much more important than I thought. So Alex and his team began to collect RNA too, naming their collection RFAM. But once you've collected and classified all of these RNA families and proteins, you're still just a stamp collector. It's other scientists who are studying what those molecules actually do. So how does Alex and his team know how to input into their database the function of each molecule? So what we and many others would like to do is actually get the experts who know about the biology of these proteins and RNAs to write this for us. And that process is uh, called community annotation. But traditionally, community annotation in biology has failed. However, we thought that this was worth revisiting, despite being very sceptical about it, because of the success of Wikipedia. So Wikipedia has shown that an online collaboration can really work. If you get all the engineering correct, then you can get people to contribute. So basically, uh, we thought Wikipedia is great. How can we emulate this model for our fam? Um, and I came up with a brave idea that actually, well, let's not try and emulate it, let's just use Wikipedia. So they drop their data into Wikipedia and plug their RFAM database into the back, so that when an edit is made in Wikipedia, it's automatically pulled into the RFAM database too. And there's lots of editors and proofreaders and enthusiasts, and including biologists, all around the world who are involved in this initiative, which means that Alex and his colleagues can get on with they're collecting and persuading other scientists to get involved. We're still a, a long way, I think, from a, a really good classification of all proteins and non-coding RNAs. But Wikipedia is a, a really useful way to engage the public and scientists in you know, helping us in this is process. And while engaging the public has proved remarkably easy, it's still a, a major challenge for us is how to get scientists involved in, in editing. Now, Sanger isn't just about gorilla genes and Wikipedia editing. Scientists at the Institute are also looking at malaria. Now, you may remember news from last year that the pharmaceutical giant GSK is conducting the final stages of trials for a malaria vaccine. What this vaccine does is block the parasite getting into the liver, which is where it first affects humans. The vaccine is said to be 40 to 50% effective at best, so although it could be a huge step forward, it's not the final answer. So researchers elsewhere, including at Sanger, are taking other approaches. 
Using genetic analysis, Sanger's Dr. Julian Rayner and his team have spotted how the malaria parasite actually gets inside our red blood cells to cause infection. This discovery could eventually even lead to a vaccine, although the research is still in the early stages. First, Julian's team has to contend with biosecurity issues, so they have special restricted access malaria labs where they keep mosquitoes and the malaria-causing plasmodium parasite. I used to work at CDC where it was spacesuits for Ebola virus. I, I knew people who worked in those areas. That's a whole different mentality. So um, plasmonium parasites, although it's transmissible, it's not airborne. So we can work in, in, um, in safety cabinets. The area is under negative air pressure, but that's as an additional level of control. We also don't allow any sharp objects in the air because the way you could infect yourself would be by needle stick. So there are no needles, there are no sharps. So, precautions taken, Julian's team can get down to work. Now, malaria is caused by a parasite that hitches a ride on mosquitoes, who then carelessly inject it into us when they're having a snack on our blood. And it's not just one parasite, there are five different parasites that cause malaria in humans. My lab works with one of them. Plasmodium falciparum, that's the one that actually causes almost all malaria mortality, but there are another four that infect humans. And infect humans it does. Between 300 and 500 million people per year. It kills over 1 million people a year. In the time it takes you to listen to this podcast, 50 people will have died from malaria. So, in addressing this major public health problem, what use is the genomics data collected by the machines we heard about earlier? A list of potential targets, a list of potential drug or vaccine targets. That's all um, to a malaria biologist, all a malaria genome is. And once you've discovered the designs for an organism like Plasmodium falciparum, by mapping its genome, you can plan how to disrupt them. And what I'm particularly interested in is how these plasmodium parasites tell what's a red blood cell and what's not, how they latch onto them, and how they get inside them. That's also the stage that produces all of the symptoms and pathology of malaria. So Julian's interested in the interaction between the plasmodium falciparum parasite and the red blood cell. What is it on the red blood cell that's letting it in? Well, it's a protein called basogen. And of course, the critical question is what happens if we try and block that interaction? What happens to parasites in culture? So to cut a long story short, if we add antibodies directed against either the red blood cell protein, basogen, or against the parasite protein, RH5, we can completely block the ability of the parasite to invade in a dose-dependent way. So that's one application of the genome sequence. Without the genome sequence, we don't have the candidate for studies like this. Don't forget you can read the transcript and visit links, including links to research mentioned in this podcast, at podacademy.org.